From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So I would say that you know, if a company decides it's not going to list in New York for whatever reason, then in the past, London was often the default choice if they were thinking about listing in Europe. We are not necessarily anymore. Listings in the UK are actually at the lowest in more than a decade. British startups are flocking to the deeper pockets found in New York and Europe. And a string of high-profile flops over the past two years has also done serious damage to investor confidence in London IPOs. I'm Francine Lacqua in the London studio, and this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories at the heart of the city of London. This week, we explore a question facing the square mile. Can it be saved? Well, Mark Austin thinks so. He's the latest person charged with sprucing up the UK's listing rules and helping the city maintain its position as one of the world's leading financial centres. And he shares his plans with us a little bit later in the show. But first, Bloomberg editor Kat van Hoof explains why a big chunk of the IPO market share disappeared from London post-Brexit and why government efforts to attract more startups have not paid off yet. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. What a great, great pleasure to have you here in the studio. So what exactly is happening in terms of relistings in London? Is it better or worse? So essentially, when you look at what's going on in the UK, especially since Brexit, you can't talk about IPOs without using the B word. So since the vote in 2016, we've definitely seen a slowdown in the number of IPOs that have come to market. I think there was a bit of hope late 2020 when they got the Brexit deal that, you know, there would be some new stuff coming through. And it did. But that sort of euphoria very quickly broke apart when a few of these listings didn't really do very well. So we had some stalwarts like Dr. Martin's listing early on in the year. And then we had Deliveroo, you know, lots of fanfare, lots of sort of chat beforehand about governance issues and about, you know, sort of the gig economy workers and the rights of these workers, etc. But still, people were very excited. All eyes were on this listing. And then it just absolutely tanked from minute one and never really recovered. About as well received as a cold takeaway. Deliveroo shares made their market debut Wednesday and promptly plunged. Deliveroo is actually halted now due to volatility as it fell by 20%. It fell by more than what that. What is going on with shares of Deliveroo? It's been kind of a, a strange offering here and certainly doesn't bode well, I would think, for you know, for the LSE going forward. I think uh, it's down 70% from the IPO price. So that really put a dent in, in the enthusiasm for London IPOs. So, is it London IPOs or is it IPOs in general? Is there a problem with the attractiveness of the UK because of the B word? When you look over the six years since the vote, the share of IPOs in Europe that have happened in, in London has diminished. So it used to be about 40% of IPOs in Europe were done in London. Since Brexit, London has hosted about 30 
90%. So it's definitely sort of a bit of a step back. And I also think it's sort of masking a greater problem where everybody else is also dealing with pandemic issues still. Everybody's dealing with a big rotation in stock markets away from growth companies. IPOs tend to come from growth (laughs) companies. But we've still seen some big listings from other countries. Mm. Um, We've seen some in Italy. We've seen some in the Nordics. Germany's preparing this massive listing um, for Porsche. So there is still activity. It's just we don't really have anything in London that's that's feasibly coming uh, anytime soon, really. So why? Is that because there were flops before? You mentioned Deliveroo. So I think it's a it's a big confluence of things. So, you know, obviously we have economic slowdown is worse in the UK than in many other European countries. You know, the, the forecasts are worse, definitely also Brexit related. Uh, you've got a little bit of, of overhang from those bad listings from 2021 sort of left a sour taste. It's not really going to make people particularly happy to invest. And then on top of all of that, we just don't have that critical mass of of these sort of big tech companies. You know, Boris Johnson's government has been really driving this charm offensive, essentially, to get startups and innovative tech companies and bring them into London. And, you know, there's all these sort of big lobby efforts going on. But you know, no matter how much you lobby and ask companies and and give them tax incentives and things like that, what really attracts tech companies is a big peer group. Because obviously in an IPO, you have to, you know, you have to be valued. Uh, The market has to put a value onto you. And if there's no other companies to compare yourself to that are listed in the market you want to list, that's a problem. And if you don't have that peer group, you're also not going to have analysts that are very specifically covering a particular area. Um, You're not going to have investors that are very comfortable investing in this particular area. And that's very, very important for these tech companies. And we've seen that with some of these tech listings in 2021, like Wise, like Deliveroo, that just haven't done very well. So Kat, Tom McKenzie and I spoke to Julia Hoggett, the chief executive officer of the LSE, and she alluded that companies might be biding their time to list at the best time. I think there's a distinction between the preparation activity Mm. that companies are doing to get ready to come to market and the choice they make about when they do so. The question as to when is partly a function of their advice and, and, and what they're told to do in terms of the optimal valuation. And obviously we're seeing a complete shift in the interest rate environment. We've seen the Russia and Ukraine circumstances. There is a global reset going on, which I don't think was anticipated when people were looking at the year in December, January. And that is factoring into people's timing decisions. So she's pretty optimistic, for example, about the UK's follow-on issuance, despite the dip in IPOs. Are the fears overblown? There is definitely a little bit of a sense of London bashing at the moment to a certain degree. And and there is always that risk of potentially over-egging it when it comes to all of the, the sort of negative things that are going on. We mustn't forget London is still very much the financial centre in Europe. It is still, you know, one bad year, so to say, or worse year than others, isn't necessarily going to mean London is over. You know, it's not forever. Exactly. (laughs) Forever and ever. It's not it's not as simple (laughs) as that for sure. But yes, there are companies abiding their time. But at the end of the day, what that means right now for the market is that some of these trends that are preventing companies from coming to market are getting worse in some ways. You know, people talk about the FTSE 100 as a dinosaur index. You know, the UK is a dinosaur stock market. It's all miners and oil and gas. And while they've done well this year, it's not generally stocks that are 
future-proof, or right. so to say. Can regulation actually give the LSE a, a new future? So they've been trying, that's for sure. <laughs> and I do think, you know, down the line, some of the changes that are being proposed, like allowing founders greater control over their company after it lists, things like, you know, smaller free floats, um, you know, just making it slightly easier for these high-growth, earlier-stage companies to come to market. That probably will start paying off in a few years' time, but that doesn't really help us now. And on top of all of that, changing the rules a little bit and tweaking that and, and, and sort of bringing London more in line with a market like New York, that's essentially sort of the, the gist of it. While a step forward in many ways for companies looking to list, it's not going to magically yeah. create this sort of critical mass of investors. So yes, it's good in some ways, but it's not necessarily going to be a silver bullet in any way. So, Kat, in five years from now, will you look back at this moment and say this is where or when we realized that this was going to be a, a more regional economy, maybe with more regional indices and IPOs? I don't even know what I'm going to have for dinner. I don't know what's going to happen in five years' time. But, but I, I Pasta. Think, always pasta for dinner. Always pasta. When in doubt, always pasta. I think we are at a an important moment in time where there is a danger of that. Things are being done, whether or not all of them are good or are going to end up in the way that they have been intended is much more difficult to predict. But there is definitely a danger, more so than probably at any other time in sort of modern history for London, where you kind of have to look at it and go, okay, we can see some of these dynamics, these trends developing, and the time to do something is now. You also have to keep in mind, this is from the regulators' perspective and companies, but investors are less enthusiastic about some of these changes. You know, for them, a London premium listing for decades has been the governance gold standard, the biggest investor protections in the world. And that's being eroded in a way, you know, some of these rules are taking away investor protections, and it does expose people a little bit more. There are reasons why these investor protections and these governance standards have been so high. And if you start eating away at these requirements, there will also be some yeah. unintended consequences. Kat, thank you so much. So now that we have a sense of how bad things have gotten, let's turn to what might be done to ensure that the city maintains its position as one of the world's leading financial centers. Joining us is Mark Austin, a partner at law firm Freshfields, who is also commissioned to lead a government review into London's capital markets. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. What was the most surprising thing you found? I mean, I think the, the, most, the most surprising good thing I found was that there is a real appetite in the market for reform. I think people get it in, in, in the UK now. We've been a leading financial centre for a long time, but that is always a process of osmosis. It's always a process of developing as the world develops around you. And you know, all credit, frankly, to the Treasury and the government and to the FCA for leaning into this process and being very visionary and moving with speed. But we need now, particularly given we're not in the EU anymore, to think about how we keep ourselves relevant. We've done it very successfully for in particular the last couple of decades. We now need to think about how we do it for the next couple of decades in a more competitive global environment, let's be clear, in listing terms, capital markets terms, but also where, one where we are outside the EU, um, because that does make a difference. What's the danger if there aren't these, you know, reforms going forward? Well, the danger is, I think, that in, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years time, we'll wake up and realise that we've slept into becoming a relatively regional parochial stock exchange and financial centre, which we've got every chance to avoid that happening. But we need to have very bold and brave conversations and honest conversations about what we need to do to try to make sure that doesn't happen. 
there's every chance it won't happen, but we're in a foot race with other jurisdictions around the world, not just New York, but you know our continental European peers as well, as well as obviously Asian stock markets. And we need to be very aware of that and be very visionary and, as I say, honest in, the, in what we need to do to reform ourselves to keep ourselves relevant. Put it simplistically, do, do investors or do, do companies at list just want high valuations and easy regulation? They do want that. I mean, clearly any listings are often used as exits or partial exits. So valuation is clearly important. And regulatory friction is clearly relevant too. People want high standards though at the same time. So there is a balance to be struck between having a regulatory system that is pragmatic and flexible and responsive to the needs of issuers and investors, and yet at the same time, not unduly so. So, I mean, part of the exercise we're going through in London at the moment is actually having an honest conversation about what do we really need to be competitive for the next 20 years and to ensure appropriate consumer protection as well. And so what do we need? So we've, we've already reformed things like free float. We've talked about dual class shares. We've made some amendments around SPACs. The FCA is continuing that process now and potentially collapsing uh, simplifying our listing segments down into one single listing segment. That's an ongoing conversation. The secondary capital raising process, which is what I've just been focusing on for the last few months, that needs to be made quicker and cheaper and more efficient. And I'm pleased to say that my review seems to have landed as I intended it to as received wisdom, by which I mean 95% of people agree with 95% of it, which is what I was trying to do. Which is not bad. But then it has to be executed on. Yeah, yeah, it does. But a bit, but I mean, I, I spent an awful lot of time talking to everybody across the market to make sure that it landed like that. And I'm glad that people engaged with it in the right way, because I was worried at the start, I'll be honest, that there might be a bit of computer says no, or this is all too hard. But actually, there's a market. The conversation has been successfully reframed, I think, to one where just because we've done things in a certain way for the last 20 years doesn't mean we should necessarily do them in the next 20 years. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we should engage in a regulatory race to the bottom and, and you know, give away the reputation we have for high corporate governance and regulatory standards. Absolutely not. But it does mean that we should be flexible and pragmatic about how we do that, particularly when we set ourselves against other listing venues. What are the other strongest listing venues out there? New York is obviously the preeminent one, always has been. It's, it's a much bigger market than we are, much more liquid, has many more companies listed over there. It's bigger in terms of size, we know that. But the I would say our main competition these days, now we're outside the EU, is actually the continental European venues, you know, Amsterdam in particular, also Paris and Frankfurt. And you see those jurisdictions, you know, they realise that too. Only a couple of weeks ago, we had Germany coming out with some revised proposals around their Future Funding Act. And that's you know, around making IPAs easier, making capital markets more efficient. The EU has come out several times with revisions on IPO rules. And France is very active as well, so is the Netherlands. We have lots of benefits in this jurisdiction, time zone, language, rule of law, stable regulatory system. It's a nice place to live. But, you know, we shouldn't delude ourselves that places like Amsterdam have all of those things too. And they are hungry. They are competitive. Mark, do people want to list in London because, it, because of the prestige? Because London was London. Yeah, they do. They do. And historically they have. But sometimes the, the question comes up, well, but you know, with the, other, the regulatory friction or the amount of flack I might get or your remuneration policies or investor attitudes, actually, it's just an easier life for me to list in Amsterdam, for example, because I get more or less the same outcome. I think in a globalised world and a globalised investor world that we have these days, increasingly, you know, global investors are pretty agnostic about the exchange that they, that they will go on. London has an allure, has a historical allure, but I think we shouldn't be under any illusions about the power that I might have going forward if we're not careful. But Mark, if you're telling me that people list in Amsterdam because they have an easier life, they're small. Once they become big, can they afford to have regulation which is maybe seen as, a, as more lax than London? Yes, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily lax. They take things on a case-by-case -case basis. 
and they are pragmatic about it and they are flexible. I don't think anyone would say that the corporate governance standards that they have in Amsterdam are any materially you know, deleterious compared to ours in London or that they are in regulatory terms any more lax. They are more relaxed and they can afford to be, you're right, because of their size. So they will have to you know, look at that as they get bigger. But the, the, the problem is that we go too far the other way at the moment. We have too much architecture around it, which when compared with a jurisdiction that has, you know, is taking a much more pragmatic approach to things, often can hold us back and can shoot us in the foot. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter when we were the default listing venue, but we're not necessarily that anymore. Mark, what, I mean, is there a psychological element to when you're listing, you also want to go to the coolest place? So actually, is, is there an IPO or something in the pipeline that would turn around the psychology of other companies to come here? I'm not sure there's one particular company. I think it's more about how, what is the perception of London amongst the founder community and the corporate community more generally? And it needs to become a default that when you are a company that is founded here, or even an international issuer, London is a viable place for you to list and get the valuation you want, the investors you want. Yeah, but you're talking about this recent blow, basically, from SoftBank, which is now rethinking whether to bring back the UK chip designer arm to the London market with a partial listing. Should UK policymakers now do everything they can to convince them that this is the right place? And what can they do concretely? Uh, what can they do concretely? I think just illustrate, demonstrate to arm and its owners that they will not be at a disadvantage by virtue either in terms of valuation or liquidity or regulatory friction or the investor attitudes that they will um, engage they will encounter in london vis-a-vis -vis any other jurisdictions i think that's the key thing i mean there are wider points from as well because as i said in my in my letter and i've said a number of times Regulatory reform is only one thing, and, and all credit to the Treasury and the FCA for moving things forward with speed on the back of Hill. And I'm confident that by you know, middle of next year, say, Q3 next year, we will have a, reg a reformed regulatory regime in London that is modernised, fit for purpose, and that bears comparison with any other listing jurisdiction in the world, which is fantastic. The other things that we need to start thinking about, are, and the discussion has already started, are things like remuneration. You know, our remuneration policies in this country do not necessarily help us. And there is an obsessive focus on remuneration. And investor attitudes in London are perhaps more uh, value-focused rather than growth-focused. I think there's a conversation to have there around investor attitudes in London. I think there's a conversation to have around proxy advisors uh, and, the, and the power they have and, and the influence they have and how they interact with companies and investors. I think there's a conversation to have about tax incentives and how you actually create a continuum across the private UK capital markets and the public UK capital markets that create tax incentives for companies to found themselves here, scale themselves here, and then stay here. What kind of time frame are we thinking about? So if this is left too long, if this is left, I don't know, 12 months, even 18 months, again, does it fizzle out? Do you have to, to kind of, you know, go quite aggressively for it now? I think you do. I think you do. And, and you know, there's no, you should strike while the island is hot. There is general consensus in the market across all stakeholders that this needs to happen. And it is happening. I don't think we need to say, you know, if we haven't done it within 18 months, it's too late. I think probably if you talk about it in three or four years, it might be too late. But we're not talking about that sort of time frame. I think people are keen to do this as quickly as possible. I'm, I'm, I'm very heartened by the fact that we are taking fairly uh, swift action on all this. But it's also about just changing the narrative amongst global investors and global companies that London is open for business, that UK capital markets are a place that they should come and list. And the point we also are making through, we'll be making through the task force, and I've also been making, is that this isn't just a look after the city of London point. I mean, that is important, but it is actually a UK economy point because 
you know, the city of London is a major economic driver of the UK economy. And so keeping it relevant is important in all sorts of economic and political terms. And if we have a thriving public and private capital market in the UK, then that drives jobs, that drives wages, that drives, you know, drives the economy. So there's a wider political and economic good that we need to reinforce too. But Mark, I don't know whether your, your feeling was that Boris Johnson was doing enough or not enough for it. it. It felt at times like actually this was something that he wanted together with the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. And now we're in a political vacuum and we don't really know what the next prime minister will do. So how much does it matter who's leading this country in this? I don't think it matters that much. And to be fair to him, Boris Johnson and his team were doing a very good job. Number 10 and number 11 very, were very keen on all this and they were very active. But I don't actually think it mattered because these reforms and these discussions that we're talking about are almost no-brainers for the reasons I was just outlining in terms of the benefit to the UK economy. Look, let's be honest. There is a risk of some complacency in London. Now, when we left the EU, that's a democratic decision. Everyone's accepted that. We need to make the best of it now. But we are in a different, as a financial centre, we are in a different position. And I've been talking earlier in this podcast about listings, but we need to keep ourselves relevant. And that's what all these reforms are about. It's what these wider attitudinal discussions are about, because we can't necessarily assume any longer that if a company's not listing in Asia or not listing in New York and it wants to list in Europe, that it will list in London. Amsterdam is a very, and the other jurisdictions are very active competitors, and they recognise that they have an opportunity. So we need to be fleet of foot. And and I don't get any sense that the political change that we're going through at the moment will make any difference to this. I don't think that whoever the Prime Minister is, whoever the Chancellor is, whether of the Conservatives or Labour or anyone else, frankly, it's all so self-evident, this, that I'm confident it, will, it won't change. But, uh, Mark, what exactly has changed with Brexit? Is it perception or is it the, the pool of capital, the pool of investors? I think a lot of it is perception, yes. The conversations that, that we often have with issuers thinking about where to list is the first thing they ask you to do is a side-by-side of New York, London, Paris, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Dubai, Hong Kong. It didn't matter so much when we were in the EU because we were the default, as I said, more often than not, place to list if you were going to list in, in Europe. We are not anymore. We've seen Amsterdam host some very large IPOs very successfully with very successful valuations. They get the same global investors coming in. No, global investors, and I've talked to a lot of them in the last few months through my review, don't really mind which exchange something is on, as long as they get the right valuation and they have a flexible regulatory regime around it to some extent. And so that's the, that's the honest conversation we need to have, because in the past, I think people thought, well, we're London, so we'll always be all right. It's not necessarily the case anymore. We will be all right, as long as we have the sensible conversations and make the sensible reforms now. But we've got to do it. And it, sometimes it requires some fairly hard conversations, because in London, being candid, there are quite a lot of vested interests and commercial interests that have got used to how we work and the little industries that we have that sort of come off the listing side of things, um, whether it's professional advisors or other. And we need to challenge some of those too now, that those orthodoxies, those chivalrous, if we really want to keep ourselves relevant. Because I, I can tell you, Amsterdam, Frank, Paris and Frankfurt will do everything they can to accentuate the positive, to make people list there. Uh, and they have, in listing terms at least, an EU minimum standard, what's called our standard listing. And so the question for us is, we need to justify why we need anything on top of that at all anymore, when we're no longer the default place to list. It's fine. I mean, we should keep our regulatory standards. I'm not, as I said earlier, we shouldn't be throwing the regulatory baby out with the bathwater, but we need to be very clear with ourselves and honest with ourselves about what we, anything we put on top of what those other jurisdictions have, justify it very honestly and very objectively. Mark, thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, and we hope you do, please head over to the Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcasts, and you can rate it with good reviews and also subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix, and produced by Samar Sadi and Elina Gunatra. Special thanks to Kat Van Hoof and Mark Austin. <laughs>